with that said, I think it's time to look at Hebrews chapter 10. I'm going to read verses 19 through 25 this morning. I am not going to give you a message from 19 through 25. We're going to look at 19 through 21. We're going to look at three weeks in, in this passage. Now, I, I realize that probably seems like a lot to some of you, but this is actually I've condensed six messages into three. I, I gave this at a, a senior's retreat down at uh, Camp Alaka down in Idaho several years ago. And it took me six times to get through it. We're, we're going to get through it in three this time. So beginning in verse 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Incidentally, I didn't finish that. If anything goes wrong this morning... I don't take the responsibility for it. It's the computer's problem. <laughs> with, with my typewritten notes, I could look at where I was in my notes and I could tell you exactly how much time I had left. I can't do that this morning because it's a totally different format. So if, if anything goes wrong, don't blame me. You can take it out on my, my computer. But as I think of what he's saying here in Hebrews chapter 10, I think of the story of a man by the name of Joseph Gabor. He grew up in Czechoslovakia when it was dominated by the communist regime. Religion was despised as a weakness. His father taught communist doctrine classes. But his mother was a believer in Jesus Christ, and she took Joseph and his brother with her to church every Sunday. They got up early each Sunday morning. They took a three-hour train ride to Prague. Then they walked to a church and sat through a two-and-a-half-hour service. After eating lunch in a nearby park, they went back to the church for another two-and-a-half-hour service. When that was over, they caught the train and took another three-hour ride home. I wonder if we had to do that. How many of us would be in church? Hmm. Joseph today is a missionary to his own people, and when he tells about going to church, his eyes often fill with tears of gratitude for a mother who cared enough about his spiritual welfare to help him come to know and serve Christ. What a tremendous testimony that was to his mother, to the Lord for the, that fact. And, and today it's a tremendous privilege for us to have a church to go to. I trust you look at it as a privilege. You know, we wrestle with what has gone on with the pandemic. And, and if nothing else comes out of it than the fact that we lost a couple months when we couldn't meet together... There should, become, there should be a new appreciation for the fact that we can worship together. Now, that's not what my message is about. Because as I read, and I realize that verse 25 encourages us not to forsake the assembly of ourselves. We're, we'll get to that on the third week. But I think there's something deeper here that we need to look at today. We are encouraged in this passage 
to draw near, not to church, but to draw near to God. To come into the presence of the almighty, holy God who has loved us enough as we've been singing to send his son to die for us. What a tremendous privilege that is to avail ourselves of him and what he has for us. Not just Sunday morning, but this is to be a regular occurrence in our lives. We don't need to meet together to come into his presence uh, with one another. We can do that ourselves. Do we avail ourselves of the privilege of fellowshipping with him? Or do we hesitate to do that through the week because we just don't feel worthy? We, we look at our life and we, well, how in the world would God want to have fellowship with me? Or, or we look at areas of our life where we're unclean or perhaps we get too busy. We just don't have time to spend with the Lord. Or do we come into his presence with confidence? How is it possible for us to do that? And I realize as I look at this passage that I'm jumping into the middle of the book. It began with the, the supremacy of Christ, looked at Christ as being greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the, the high priest of Aaron, and on and on it goes. And then he comes down to this passage. If you recall the last three weeks, Pastor Doug was here, and Pastor Doug gave us a three-point outline. Do you remember what it was? A was what? Accuracy. I. And M. Ministry. You got them all. Good. I'm going to have to tell Doug that you you paid attention. (laughs) That'll encourage him. But uh, Doug incidentally asked me to remind you of this. Last week in your bulletin, you got a little paper that looked like this. And he was supposed to tell you that was your homework at at the end. Uh, And you were to take some time, get alone quietly with the Lord, and go over the questions that were raised on there. I told him I'd give you that homework today. And so if, if you look in your Bibles, you probably shoved it in the back of your Bible somewhere, along with all the other bulletins that you've gathered up over the years. And, and uh, dig it out and, and take it. Because the next three weeks, I, and I, I told Doug this, so uh, he gave me his, his permission uh, and encouragement in this. I said, I'm going to take your outline and use it. Uh, I'm going to steal it from you. Today, we're going to look at accuracy. What does God say about us drawing near to him? That's his, we're going to look at his part in verses 19 through 21. Uh, it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what our governor says. It doesn't matter what our president says. What does God say about us drawing near to him in fellowship? Next week, we'll look at that little idea of intimacy there. If we're going to draw near to God, what do we have to do? We're going to look at our part next week. What does God expect of us? And then if if we really come and we meet with God on his terms, then should come ministry out of of our time together with the Lord. I I think of Isaiah chapter 6 in that. Isaiah, remember, was in the temple the year that King Uzziah died. He, He was praying and seeking what God had next for his nation. And he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And he had that tremendous experience of, of seeing the glory of the Lord filling the temple and so forth there. And in that 
time, the Lord said, who will I send? Who will go for us? Remember what Isaiah said? Here am I, send me. So our, our ministry comes out of our drawing near to God and having fellowship with him. It all begins with God. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God. God will draw near to you. For reasons we cannot comprehend today, God chose us and desired to have fellowship with us. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 speaks of the fact that he chose us before the foundation of the world. We, we see that the great desire of God in, in Genesis chapter 3 when uh, Adam and Eve had chosen to eat of the tree of the uh, knowledge of good and evil. We, we read in, in verse 8 of that chapter that God came in the cool of the evening to meet with them. Why did he come? I think it was his habit to come and fellowship with them. That's one of the reasons he created that. We also see his desire for fellowship in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 26, uh, beginning with verse 11, he says, Moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. My soul will not reject you. I will also walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, so you should not be their slaves. And he goes on to express the fact that he wanted to be in their midst. He wanted to have fellowship on a regular basis with his people. So how is that possible? How can we, as sinful as we are sometimes, as insignificant as we see ourselves at times, how can we possibly draw near to God? What makes that a reality in our lives? There are three things that come out of verses 19 through 21 that make it possible for us to approach the Almighty God, the Holy God. The first is we draw near through the blood of Christ, beginning in verse 19 here. Our confidence, our boldness as we come into the presence of God is not in ourselves. It is in the fact that he shed his blood for us. He gave his blood as a sacrifice for us. We don't come as a result of our works. We don't come because of our background. After all, weren't we born in a Christian nation? That makes us all Christian. No, that doesn't make us a child of God. We come because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We don't even come. Um, well, I'm jumping ahead of myself. That's the computer's fault there. <laughs> uh, it, but what is the significance for us of the blood? Most societies have rituals that involve blood sacrifices. I don't care where you go in the world, what group you meet with, that there's that idea of a blood sacrifice. Where did that start? I believe it started in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve sinned and God came. And remember, Adam and Eve realized they were naked. What did they do? They clothed themselves with fig leaves. Do you ever wonder how many fig leaves Eve tried on before she found one that she thought was just right? <laughs> We're involved in a wedding in our family. Our granddaughter's getting married in a couple weeks here in, in Montana. And uh, I sometimes just shake my head. Uh, the communication going back and forth. What are you wearing? What, uh, how do you, what do you think of this dress? And they send pictures back and forth and so forth. I, I feel sorry for Eve. She had to do that too. But uh, God said that's not sufficient. What did he do? He clothed them with skins. For that to happen, an animal had to die. Blood had to be shed. And I, I believe 
even though we don't have the record of how that happened and so forth, I believe in that moment God revealed to them the need of a blood sacrifice. And go on into the next chapter, Cain and Abel come with their sacrifices. They, they know how to offer a sacrifice. It, it's been revealed to them. God doesn't tell us how he did it for them. It's not until you get to Leviticus that you get some of that information. But it, it was there. God chose to work through the blood. When I was in college, uh, first year, I, I took, uh, of course, the Old Testament survey. Every student had to take Old Testament survey, and then the next semester you had to take New Testament survey. It was taught by Dr. Kenneth McKinley. He wrote a book entitled Scanning the Plan. And, and it, it was, I, I thoroughly enjoyed his course. It was a tremendous uh, way of uh, an overview of scripture and so forth and tying it together a lot that I had heard over the years. But in it, he said, redemption is the unifying theme of all scripture. And he went on to say that from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, there is a scarlet cord of redemption. God made that first sacrifice because he wanted you and I to have the opportunity to have fellowship with him. It's through the blood that we come with confidence into his presence. His blood does three things for us here. And like I said, this is part of a six-part message, so you're not going to get all six of them here that the blood does for us. I'm only going to give you three today. His blood, first of all, provides for us forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no, the word that he uses there is remission. There is no forgiveness. There is no freedom from our sin. The word speaks of a deliverance from a, a debt. One chorus we used to sing years ago, I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. He paid that debt for us. The price was his blood. That's why on the cross, as he hung there on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. That word that he uses there literally means it is paid. That's what, when you go down and you pay a bill and they, they stamp on it paid, that's, that's the word that he used there. It provides forgiveness for our sin because the debt was paid, not by ourselves, but by Jesus Christ. It was through his blood that we have forgiveness. Then his blood provides for us redemption. We sing that song, redeemed, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the lamb. It captures that truth that comes out of First Peter 1, 18 and 19, where he speaks of the fact that we're redeemed not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. It's his blood it, that makes the difference in, in our lives. Man has sought redemption in many ways. They seek redemption through sacrifice. They, they, they seek redemption through good works. Some even attempt to buy their salvation. Probably, uh, Psalm 49, verse 7 and 8 says, you know what? If you're going to do that, you might as well just give up. You might as well cease trying because you can't come up with enough to pay for your sin. Only Jesus Christ was able to to do that. In Ephesians 1.7, he, he speaks of the fact that we have redemption through his blood. His blood provides that redemption for us. A missionary in West Africa was trying to convey the meaning of redemption, the word redeem to the Bambara language. So he asked his African colleagues how 
they would say, how they would express that word in their native tongue. One of the men that he was working with said, we, rep- we say that God took our heads out. Now, that was a puzzle to the missionaries. How does that picture redemption? And so he asked him. The man went on and told him that years ago, his ancestors had been captured by slave traders. And they were packed down to the coast and, and put on ships and brought over to the new world. He said each of the prisoners had a heavy iron collar around his neck so that he couldn't run away. And as they they passed through a village, sometimes a chief would notice a friend amongst the captives and he would offer to pay the slave traders to redeem that particular person. If the slave traders accepted the gold or the ivory or the silver or whatever, his head was taken out of the iron collar. He was set free. He was redeemed. And in a sense, that's what Christ did for us. He redeemed us from the bondage of sin, the bondage of Satan. He has set us free. We are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And then the third thing his blood does for us, it provides cleansing today. In uh, 1 John 1, 9, he speaks of the fact, or 1, 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then he goes on in verse 9 to say, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to do what? Forgive us of that sin. And so it's because of the blood, uh, we, we can feel unworthy. We can look say, look at what I did. How can God want to have fellowship with me? The fact of the matter is, Jesus says, I paid for that sin. Confess it, and it's cleansed. It's gone. It's removed as far as the east is from the west. And, and so as we look at what he did, we can give thanks and we can give praise for the blood of Jesus Christ today. The second reason we can draw near to God is the body of Jesus Christ. And I'm not sure you got the body of Jesus up there. Okay, that's what I had in my notes, and I realized that doesn't follow through this morning. It, I had Christ on the first one, on the third one. I didn't have it on the second one. But then again, that's computer work for you. Uh, in verse 20, though, we come through a new and living way. We come through the body of Jesus Christ. Now, the problem that we wrestle with is there are times when we realize we are sinful. He is not. How can we approach a holy God. How, how can we come into his presence? And I think that's why he mentions here the body of Christ. Notice it's in connection with what? It's in connection in verse 20 through the veil. That is his, his flesh. It's a new and living way. But he takes us back to the picture in the Old Testament of the veil that, that separated man from the mercy seat and, the, and a holy God there. Uh, Exodus 26 gives us the construction of the veil there beginning in verse 31 it says you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet material fine twisted linen it shall be made with cherubim it's quite the work of a skillful workman you shall hang it on four four pillars and so forth there and it gives the directions for, for for doing that it was a beautiful work of art all of those colors woven together uh and then on it was the the picture of the cherubim a a beautiful work of art. When you come down to Herod's temple, Josephus told us 
tells us that there were the veil that was put into Josephus or into that, that temple was made out of 72 squares of uh, linen and wool woven together. It was 60 feet long. It was uh, 30 feet high and four inches thick. It took over 200 priests to raise that when they installed it in, in, in the temple. And as it was hung there in the temple, it in a sense said, you can come this far and no farther. You could not enter the Holy of Holies and come into the presence of a holy God. Only the high priest was allowed to do that, and he only did it once a year. The way to God was barred. There was a veil that separated man from God until Christ on the cross cried out, it is finished. And then we read in the Gospels that that veil was rent in twain from top to bottom. I think that's significant. Who was the one that tore that apart? Man could not begin to do it. God did it. From the top to the bottom, it was torn in in two parts there. What was he saying in that moment? He was saying the way into the presence of God is now open for you and I. We can draw near to God today. He was the one that inaugurated it. He was the one that makes it possible for us. Began back in John 1, 14, where it says Christ became flesh. Took upon himself, uh, I'm sure all of you did your homework for Doug last week. Remember he said, memorize Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Verses 6 and 7 there speaks of the fact that he, he, came, he took upon himself the form of a man, even the form of, of a bondservant and went to the cross for us. And what he is saying in that is the barrier has been removed. The way is open for us to fellowship with the almighty God. Now, Josephus in his notes goes on to say that the priests tried to repair or sew together the veil that God had written to They missed the whole purpose of what God was saying through that act. And, and I don't want to be too hard on them. Can you imagine the confusion and the consternation that must have been in the temple as they were there to offer the evening sacrifice? It was the time of the evening sacrifice that had to be offered every day. They were going about their responsibility of doing that, and suddenly you hear this ripping sound, and that veil is, is torn in, in two. How do you respond to that? Well, they tried to sew it back together. Uh, they missed the point that the way to God was open because Jesus Christ, the veil represented his body that was given for us. We celebrate that in the Lord's table, don't we? The body and the blood of Jesus Christ. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. No one took his life. He literally gave it on the cross for us. He could have prevented it. He could have done something different, but he literally gave himself for us. And then I want to read Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20 here. Because as we move into the third point, we have the blessing of Christ. Hebrews 6 speaks of uh, uh, the hope we have. This hope we have is an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Incidentally, do you have hope today? Or are you looking at life and looking at what's going on in our society and and beginning to feel hopeless? Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. 
of all people, we have a reason to hope today. This hope we have, he said, as an anchor of the soul, hope both sure and steadfast, one that enters where? Within the veil, where Christ has entered as the forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. We have, I think, in verse um, 21 here, the blessing of Christ. We have the blood, we have the body, we have his blessing as we draw near. He became our high priest. Why, did you ever wonder why did they establish a priesthood in the Old Testament? The priesthood was given because the children of Israel were afraid of God. They saw the power of God. They saw the awesomeness of God as he came on Mount Sinai and gave him the law. And they said, we can't approach a holy God. He'd already told them they couldn't do it. He said, if you come, you're going to be struck dead. Uh, Only Moses and the elders were allowed to go up there on that mountain. But God said, I will give you, in a sense, a mediator. I will give you a priest. You can come and the priest will represent you before God. That was the priest's responsibility. Priest represented people to God. The prophet represented God to the people. And so the high priest entered once a year to make atonement for the sins of of the, the nation there. Now, we don't have to wait once a year. Christ is our high priest. Christ has gone in beyond the veil for us, and he says, come on in. Come on in. It's time for us to have fellowship together. Uh, He is our merciful, faithful mediator between ourselves and God. He can do that because he satisfied the demands of a holy God by giving his body and his blood on the cross for us. And so he he qualified to serve. Now, if you go back to First uh, John there, where we looked at verse 1, verse 9, we confess our sin, he's faithful and just. He, he goes immediately from that in, as you start chapter 2 into the thought that he said, these things I write unto you that you sin not. But if you do sin, what? God's finished with us? No, that's not exactly what he says there. He said, if, if we do sin, we have an advocate. We have someone that stands there to plead our case, to say, Father, yes, they've sinned, but I've shed my blood for that sin. He's there to uh, make it possible for us to have fellowship with the almighty God. He can, as Hebrews says, as a, our high priest, sympathize with our weaknesses. I won't take time to read it, but just jot down Hebrews 4. 14 through 16. As our high priest, he understands the temptations that we face. And what does he offer us in that passage? He offers us two things. He offers us mercy. Do you ever feel in the need of mercy? Do you ever feel you you really should be judged, but uh, you, you, you would really like mercy? The struggle is real. Psalm 37, verse 24 speaks to the fact that we all stumble at times. And he's there to pick us up, put us back on our feet. I I, I was reading just this week, uh, it said, an article that said, kids want justice. You ever see that in the schoolroom or on the playground? What do they say? It's not fair. 
Your kids ever say that to you? It's not fair. And you realize you can't always make it fair. But that's just a fact of life. Kids want justice. Adults want mercy. They realize if God was ju- uh, extended justice to us, Romans 3.23 says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We, we all deserve his, his judgment. And so rather than wrestling with justice, we, we want mercy. And aren't you glad that our high priest is there to extend mercy to us when we need it. He, he, gives, he grants us that mercy. And then he also gives us his grace. Grace is God's blessing I do not deserve. How many of you, now let's go show of hands on this. I don't usually ask for a show of hands, but how many of you had a blessing this week? We'll pray for the rest of you. <laughs> because God does bless us, do we? Donnie, how many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand on this one because that might be a little bit embarrassing. How many of you really deserved that blessing? Hmm. It was a gift of his grace, wasn't it? He, He chose to shower his grace upon you. He understands our weaknesses, our needs. He's able to bring the resources of heaven to help us as we walk through this life. He has given us his grace. And we need to be thankful for that today. Uh, One more thought on that. Hebrews 7, verse 25, he speaks of the fact that God is able to save us to the uttermost who come to God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. What does that mean? There's never going to be a time when we want to draw near to God that we walk in beyond the veil and God says, get out of here. I don't want you. He saves us to the He's there every time we come. That is an interesting word that the writer of Hebrews uses for us there. It's only used two times in scripture, that the word uttermost. The other one is a rather strange one. It comes out of Luke chapter 13, verse 11. Now, you're not going to hear that word as I read that verse, but uh, I'll, I'll explain it to you in, in just a minute. It says, Behold, there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are free. And suddenly she, she was free. That little word, could not straighten up at all, is the same word that is used here as uttermost. What it, it was, it, it's used in the negative sense in, in Luke chapter 13 because this woman had done absolutely everything she knew possible. Uh, you read some of the other gospels, she had used all of her resources to pay doctors to find out what was going on in her life, and she was not able to find any help. But the positive side of that is Hebrews 7. He's able to save us to the uttermost. He has done it all for us. He is able to bring to us the grace of God when we need it there. Uh, The idea is she could in no wise help herself, and neither can we, apart from the work of Jesus Christ. But when we come to him, we find his forgiveness, his cleansing, his mercy, and his grace. So take some time this week and celebrate grace. He has blessed you with grace. Years ago, there was a story told of a sensitive young man in the 18th century who joined 
the British Army. But when the shots began to be fired, he ran away. He deserted. And uh, years later, he became a great astronomer, even discovering one of uh, our new planets for us. And then one day, he received a letter from King George calling him to the palace. He came fearful that the king would order his execution because he had deserted. He had left the army, never had gone back to make that right. As he entered the palace, he was handed an envelope and he opened the envelope and inside was a royal pardon. He was ushered into the presence of the king and the king said, now we can talk. You shall come up and live at Windsor Castle. And he went on to have a part in the royal household there. In a sense, that is what God has done for us. He's given us that part. And he's invited us into his presence. He said, I want you to draw near to me. I want you to come and have fellowship. I want you to be a part of my family. I, I want you to fellowship with me. Not just go to church on Sunday morning. No, he's talking about something deeper than that. He's talking about you and I having an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As I think of what he's saying in these verses, I think, first of all, this is a tremendous, encouraging passage of Scripture. To think that God would love us so much, that God would desire fellowship with us so much, that he would send his son to die on the cross for us. I think we need to take some time and really think that through and meditate on that this week and, and offer our, our praise to, to the one who was willing to do that. But it is also, and I, I hadn't planned on this. I can't blame this on the computer. This came out of events of this week. It's also... A convicting thought. We're invited into the presence, but how do we come? We'll, we'll look at that some next week, but I'm, I'm going to do just a little bit of meddling. Uh, we've had quite a debate in recent days. Some, our, our congregation in some ways has been split between Romans 13 and Romans 14. I'm not going into those passages this morning. You, you're aware of what they are. But it has brought a, a, a sense of separation into our midst. And, and as I thought about that this week and I, I listened to both sides of what's going on, I realized we're missing something in that debate. Because if you read the book of Romans, it doesn't start with chapter 13 and it doesn't start with chapter 14. Actually, there, there's four sections to the book of Romans, and I think I got time to give them all to you here. He, he begins in the opening chapters, with one through three there, with revealing the wrath of God. It's directed against unrighteousness, ungodliness, and so forth, and comes to the conclusion all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he doesn't stop there. Uh, beginning in verse three, I think it's about 22 or 23, he begins to reveal the work of God. He reveals justification, uh, sanctification, glorification. It takes you all the way down to the end of chapter 8 there. It's all about what Christ has done for us. And then in 9 through 11, you have 
the, the work of God being revealed as he uh, reveals not only is God interested in the church, but he's interested in Israel and how those two play out and play together there. So he, he gives us that. And then you come down to chapter 12 and you begin to get a glimpse of what? The will of God. He said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, you present your bodies a what? A living sacrifice. That's where you start if you want to understand what's being said in chapter 13 and chapter 14. You start by coming as a living sacrifice. And then in the very next verse, he says, you need your minds transformed. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so if if you're going to understand what God is saying in these times, you need the mind of Christ. You need to come and and take some time and search out what is it that God is saying in in these passages. And then he goes on in the very next verse. And why he does this, don't ask me. Ask Paul when you get to heaven. But he goes on in the next verse to say, we're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. But we're to think soberly and so forth there. Uh, And then he moves right from that into spiritual gifts and we're to use those gifts based on the fact that hey we're not the important one it's not about us it's about jesus christ and it's about what he has done for us don't get that exalted opinion of himself he's saying there but recognize that we need to take the time to draw near to god to take some time and listen to what does he have to say? Not what we think it says, but what would he say to us from these passages of Scripture? Uh, I, I was sitting down there, uh, as is my habit, as uh, I guess over the years, I, I don't always fully enter into the, the singing as I should. And I have to apologize to our, our, our musicians for that because my mind is on what I'm going to say. And it suddenly dawned on me, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 speaks of the fact that we are to draw near to God. But he says, if we, when we draw near to God, we do it carefully. He said, draw near to listen. Don't be quick to speak. Draw near to find out what he has to say to us today. First Corinthians 15, verse 10, the apostle Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's not about us. It's about him. What would he say to us? What would he have us to do? And, and so my question you, to you this morning is, are you daring to draw near to God? He's made it possible. He's opened the door. The, the, the veil's been rent in twain for us. We, we have the privilege of entering. Do we avail ourselves of the presence of God on a regular basis or do we let everything else crowd into our lives and we miss listening to what God would say to us today. Let's pray. Father, again, we stop and confess that we don't fully understand the cross. We don't fully understand why you would do that for us. There are times when we even struggle with the fact that you desire to have fellowship with us. But the accuracy, the truth is, you do. You've invited us. And so give us the opportunity this week to stop, 
to meditate on your grace, your mercy, on your blessing, to meditate on all that you've done for us, and then to search our hearts, to ask, what is it that you're saying to us? What is it that you would have each of us to do today? May we come seeking you, knowing that we're yours to command, and and we give ourselves to you for that fact. In Jesus' name, amen.